Light up your night with the Kevin Smith Show. Hi, this is Kevin Smith. Join me Monday through Friday right here on the Paranormal Radio Network. Do you like to have questions about everything? Would you like to escape from your proverbial box? Just leap out and explore our world in ways you've never imagined? You can have that opportunity. As we grow and expand, new features will be added, allowing you to experience radio programming at a fresh new level. I invite you to join me, November Hansen, host of Voice of the People. Together, we can expand our horizons and peer into multifaceted possibilities. This program will broadcast live Saturday evenings on the Paranormal Radio Network. week's worldwide broadcast of The Joyner Report. Now here's your host, Angela Joyner. Good evening and welcome to this special edition of The Joyner Report, streaming live around the planet via the UFO Paranormal Radio Network, as well as broadcasting on WPRN-FM in New Orleans. I'd like to give a shout-out to our listeners in the Big Easy. I certainly appreciate you all spending the evening with us, as usual. Additionally, you can listen to the show on your cell phone by dialing 704-631-4060 and entering the station ID code 2899. I'm Frank Warren, editor and publisher of the UFO Chronicles, returning as your guest host tonight while Angela is taking a break in the action. For the latest in UFO news, as well as its history, you can find us at www.theufochronicles.com. Yesterday, of course, was Veterans Day, and my guests tonight were chosen in part to honor and acknowledge all of our veterans with, special, uh, with a special salute to former Captain Bob Salas and retired Colonel Dwayne Arnie Arneson. Bob will be on shortly, and Arnie will bat cleanup in the second hour. For newcomers to the show, one of the things unique to the UFO Paranormal Radio Network on the Internet side is the fact that not only can you listen to the show, but you can participate in the conversation in real time using the software known as PalTalk. I like to call it our virtual auditorium, or V-Room, if you will. The software in question downloads in minutes, it's relatively easy to use, and it enables you to posit questions to either myself or my guests in real time. If you currently don't have PalTalk and you'd like to give it a try, you can Google it, or better yet, go to the UFO Chronicles, which again is at www.theufochronicles.com, and at the bottom of the article for tonight's show, you'll see the links to a step-by-step procedure of how to download the software and navigate to the room uh, for this particular episode. In taking a peek in the V-Room, it looks like we've got another good crowd. I know many of you are eager to ask our guests some questions, and as usual, I'd uh, like to ask that you hold off a bit, at least until we get into the shows a ways. You'll know when. 
As most of our listeners are aware, a press conference of historic proportions took place at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. on September 27th, approximately six weeks ago. The conference was hosted by noted researcher Robert Hastings and tonight's guest, Bob Salas. Together they presented six former U.S. Air Force officers and one former enlisted man, one of the group, of course, being Colonel Arneson, my second guest tonight. These men, for the first time, collectively revealed their own dramatic experiences involving UFOs at nuclear weapons sites. The goal was to garner worldwide media attention to this vital issue by presenting the testimony of highly credible individuals who witness extraordinary encounters, i.e. UFOs, seemingly monitoring and sometimes tampering with our nuclear weapons and or facilities, these events which have officially been kept secret for decades. Personally, as a researcher, I think I can safely speak for the majority in saying we always want more uh, in regards to response to the media. However, suffice it to say, the goal was in fact achieved based on the feedback in various mainstream venues. Bob Salas, a former U.S. Air Force captain, was a Minuteman One launch officer. His specific title was a Deputy Missile Combat Crew Commander. While on duty at Malmstrom Air Force Base's Oscar flight on March 24, 1967, all of his missiles malfunctioned and dropped off alert status. Simultaneously, one of his guards reported a UFO hovering over the launch facility, over the launch control facility's security fence gate. Salas and his missile commander, now retired Colonel Fred Mywald, were debriefed about the incident and asked to sign non-disclosure statements by an agent from the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, or OSI. Mywald has confirmed that shortly after the malfunctions occurred, a two-man security alert team was sent out to one of the flight's missile silos to investigate a tripped alarm there. Upon approaching the site, the team saw a, a second or possibly the same UFO hovering near it, whereupon they became frightened and quickly returned to the launch control facility. Bob is also the co-author of Faded Giant, which relates the events of March 24, 1967 in great detail, along with his personal journey into research and the evidence he's uncovered. It's a great honor for me to welcome this veteran and patriot to tonight's show. Bob, welcome to the Joiner Report. Frank, thank you for having me. Uh, you've been a great supporter, and, and it's just an honor for me to be here with you. Well, as I've always said, I've got your back. Okay. And, uh, First and foremost, on behalf of myself and our listeners, I'd like uh, to not only thank you, Bob, for your service to this country, but for your courage in stepping forward in, in discussing these events, uh, the things that we deem so important to not only the American people, but literally everyone on the planet. Well, thank you. I, I, I consider it a responsibility to report on these events. I've been doing this for now 15 years now, uh, talking about this openly, and uh, I uh, at times thought I was through, but uh, it seems like I've got to keep going um, until we get some, some action, uh, obviously. Well, you know, unfortunately, you're on a very short list, and, uh, you know, my hat is off to you. And, you know, one of the things, that, you know, before we, we went live, uh, uh, you know, you have to keep chipping at this, as you and I have agreed upon, and we do get results when we do chip away at it. Uh, in fact, I wanted to ask you earlier this afternoon, you know, we did get a new witness that was a commander at, uh, at uh, one of the launch facilities at another Air Force base. Uh, I, he's, he's a little bit nervous about going public. He, he has agreed so far uh, to an interview with me, and I hope to talk to him in the next few days. 
but it was it's very exciting and uh, he had similar events uh, his uh, his buttons on his console went haywire one button he said specifically showed a launch mode uh, so it, and this is a direct result from the press conference that you and uh, and Robert Hastings uh, put together a few weeks ago yeah that's one of the things we were really hoping for that um, uh, not only the uh, uh, the press would get involved and, and talk about this more but that uh, men and uh, in and out of service uh, would come forward uh, with their stories, and uh, I'm I'm really heartened to hear that you you do have an additional witness coming forward to you, and uh, I think I've heard uh, a couple of rumors that uh, other people might be coming forward too. So we'll just have to see what that holds. But uh, yeah, this, this happened, of course, uh, after I started talking about it on the Art Bell Show. And this is way back in 1996. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I heard from uh, Robert Kaminsky, who was the uh, uh, chief Boeing investigator for the uh, Echo shutdown, and so uh, it, it really helps to to, to come forward and, and talk about this, and uh, and more people uh, come forward too. And, and speaking of Kaminsky, uh, we do have at the UFO Chronicles a snippet from an audio interview that he did several years ago. Kaminsky, unfortunately, has passed away. Uh, but we do have that uh, few-minute snippet of that interview done, I forget what year it was, where he confirms UFO activity uh, in his position as an engineer for Boeing. So he is yet another witness added to the collective. Um, before we get too far into the UFO minutia, I want to do something that is often overlooked, and we spoke about this before we went on. Um, if you would, for our listeners, and specifically the younger listeners, uh, I'm wondering if we could just kind of paint the time, so to speak, kind of give, uh, uh, you know, give an, an idea of the, of the flavor of what was going on. For example, you know, 1967, we're in the middle of the Cold War. We were brought to the brink, literally, of nuclear war not too many years earlier. Uh, folks were still building bomb shelters. Schools were still doing nuclear attack drills, as I, as I remember when we used to have to crawl under our desks. Uh, why don't you go ahead and pick it up from there and just kind of describe, you know, get a tone of, uh, of that time period in, uh, in, and then in relationship to your job. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It was a it was a tense time. Uh, of course, Vietnam was going on. Uh, we were still involved with the Cold War. We didn't know if China was going to get involved in the Vietnam War, um, and of course, uh, China had nukes at that time. Uh, so uh, it was it, it was very sensitive. And I I make we I make this point in the book that because of that, um, uh, this. Uh, the Air Force would have been loath to do something to shut down missiles intentionally. So that, that's another rationale for uh, this not being uh, some kind of an Air Force exercise. Uh, uh, we had every reason to keep all those missiles on full alert. Well, and that, uh, and to the point, there are a lot of naysayers. Uh, try to put a conventional spin on it in the sense that that, that it may in fact have been some sort of exercise, but as you correctly point out, tensions were high. Uh, in, in fact, this is uh, fodder for another show, but there were a lot of uh, uh, near uh, accidents that almost put us into nuclear uh, uh, war a number of times mm -hmm. that didn't uh, get into the public domain. But um, 
what was your uh, – could you describe for the listeners what your day uh, as a, a deputy commander in a missile silo, uh, what did it entail? What, what was the natural day for you? I, I would imagine most of it was pretty boring. Uh, yeah, I guess you'd call it pretty boring. We, uh, we would go to a briefing first before we went out on alert, and they'd tell us uh, – uh, you know, things like road conditions and whether or not there were any activities in the field that we ought to be aware of and uh, maintenance activities in particular at our flight. So, uh, And then we'd, uh, we went uh, driving out to Oscar flight, which was over 100 miles from the base. Uh, so if the weather was good, we'd drive um, or or we'd be helicoptered out. It, it depended. Uh, we get out there. We relieve the crew. <clears throat> we get debriefed by the crew there, and uh, and if you know we had maintenance activity, of course we had to be aware of that. But mostly, if if nothing was going on, we'd uh, we just uh, just stand by on alert and 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 check our systems now and then to make sure that um, everything was okay. The um, we'd have uh, if we had any security violations going on, we'd ha have guards going back and forth and checking things out uh, it was fairly routine and uh, so uh, what what I would be doing much of the time would be uh, studying because I was uh, uh, studying for a master's degree in engineering uh, at the time they had a program and that was one of the attractions for the program uh, to, to get your master's degree while you're on alert status or alert duty on um, so I was usually uh, doing a lot of homework Actually, that this new witness mentioned something uh, to that effect as well. Um, in regards to maintenance, two-man team, three-man team, how did that work? Uh, it varied. Uh, of course, uh, usually uh, if, if maintenance was going to open up the facility and go into the um, into the launcher, they'd have to have a guard with them. So uh, they would have to check in before they you know, by, uh, opened up the outer fence and then uh, and then make regular checks to our, our security people. Um, uh, so um, it, it was usually, I'd say, three, four people maybe tops uh, for, for a maintenance team. And I, I got the impression that that was, it was not uncommon. I mean, you, there was routine maintenance, and these guys would sleep in a camper. Is that how that worked? If they stayed overnight, uh, yeah. If if they had to stay overnight, and sometimes they did, they would have a camper out there and uh, spend the night there. And I think that was the situation at Echo Flight uh, uh, before their missiles went down. I think at two of the sites they had uh, maintenance teams and uh, security guards out at two of the sites that evening. Right, it, as I recall, I think yeah that. that <coughs> Um, now, as far as security, this, the security teams floated from silo to silo, or did they, or were there specific people attached to one silo? Or? Uh, well, our security teams would be assigned to a particular launch facility, launch control facility, and then um, they would maybe take uh, routine checks now and then, and, and then uh, just stand by in case there was some kind of a uh, we got a, a missile incursion every now and then. We got, I'm sorry, a, an incursion into the launch facility, 
Every now and then we got, uh, you know, a jackrabbit jump the fence or uh, maybe a deer brush against the fence, something like that. And, uh, and then we'd have uh, send There was a type of radar. Wasn't there a type of radar to detect it, movement? It, was, it wasn't radar. It was uh, more uh, uh, motion detectors. I see. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Now, God forbid, um, it, what, uh, and, and this is something that, I, I've never heard you talk about specifically, but I think this is important to, again, to the flavor of the times. What would precipitate a nuclear launch? In other words, what, uh, you know, obviously if we had inbound missiles coming in, but could, could you des describe a scenario uh, where you would literally launch nuclear missiles? Well, of course, we, we were not... Uh we're not privy to any uh, scenario. All, all we had to do uh, was, uh, if we got a message, and of course these messages were uh, uh, crypto messages, and they'd have to, they'd have to be deciphered. Uh, but if if we did get a a message to launch, uh, uh, there were certain procedures that we had to go through. Uh, so. We, we, it's not like we were listening to the news down there to make, you know, if uh, World War III was about to happen. If, right. Uh, usually we ha we had to go through the DEFCONs. So you, you're probably familiar with DEF, uh, Defense Condition Readiness uh, numbers. Uh, and uh, normally we're in DEFCON 5, uh, and then if it got down to uh, uh, 2, then uh, war was imminent, and DEFCON 1, I think, was uh, we were at war. Did, did you ever uh, experience a, a DEFCON lower than five at any time during your service? Uh, no. Well, I think possibly we had gone to four at one, uh, during during my time there, but uh, I know during the Cuban Missile Crisis there were DEFCON three. Now, to, to be clear, it's just you and my wall in, in your silo. Is that correct, in your uh, launch facility? Yeah, I, that's right, underground in the capsule. Uh, we just had a commander and a deputy. At the time, I was a deputy. Later on, I, I became a commander myself. Now, I'm going somewhere with this, so bear with me. Okay. Had you gone down to DEFCON 1, I mean, if war was intimate between you and Mywald after authentication and, and, and going through all the crypto messages and whatnot, it was within mm -hmm. your power and Fred's power to literally launch nuclear weapons. Is that correct? That's correct. It just took two of us to do it. That's right. Now, the reason that I, uh, what I'm trying to get at at this is the importance of your job uh, and you being in there under the control of these nuclear weapons. And quite frankly, uh, you know, so many of the naysayers uh, tend to poo-poo witnesses and so forth and so on. My point is is that uh, the, the caliber of your character and training and so forth put you in, in what would ar arguably be one of the most important positions at the time in the world. I mean, you literally, uh, in, in essence, had uh, your finger on the proverbial button that could launch uh, World War III, which quite arguably, again, could be the end of the world as we know it uh, because we were in the Cold War. I mean, you know, we launched, they launch. Next thing you know, you've got a salvo of nuclear weapons going, to, you know, going across the oceans. Um, I think this is something that is often overlooked, uh, just in how important not only you but all of the other witnesses, what their jobs were, 
in, regard, in regards to these nuclear weapons. And also how important it is when unidentified objects are reported in close proximity. Uh, you know, I, I mean, just in turn, a lot of people like to put the UFO spin on it, but just the importance uh, in the safety that's involved when you have an unknown in close proximity uh, to, to our nuclear defenses. And by the way, of course, there is a history of this uh, since the beginning of what we deem modern-day ufology since 1947. I mean, in the, in, in the summer of 47, we had UFOs reported at Hanford. Uh, we had them reported at Oak Ridge in, in Tennessee. The Savannah River uh, Project, we had them reported at Los Alamos. Of course, everybody heard, has heard of Roswell, but there, they were also reported uh, when Roswell turned to Walker. Uh, there was another base in Texas that had nuclear weapons, Air Force Base. They were reported there. There is a habit that there is a pattern of UFOs reported in and or around uh, nuclear weapons facilities. And, I, you know, I, I can't, to me, that is so important, uh, you know, to us as American citizens, but obviously it would be to any military faction. Um, now, okay, that said, and I hope our listeners uh, have kind of got an idea of, uh, of what was going on at the time. I mean, we, the, the tensions were pretty tough. Again, years earlier, we almost, we were just this close to going uh, in, into a nuclear war uh, with the then Soviets. Uh, take us back to March 24th and explain to our listeners uh, what happened from your perspective uh, in your particular event with Oscar Flight. Okay, real quick again. March 24th, uh, Fred Mywald and I were on alert status. Fred was on a, a rest break. We had a little cot down there. and uh, So I get a call from the top uh, flight security controllers, top side, uh, and he's telling me that they've, they've been seeing strange lights in the sky, making really strange maneuvers. Or they didn't think they were airplanes. They were noiseless. Uh, but uh, very strange maneuvers, uh, going very fast and turning on a dime, things like that. I, I even joked about the possibility of they were, you mean UFOs? And he said, well, I couldn't explain what was going on. I, now, of course, you know, I didn't take this as any kind of a joke. Uh, he was serious. Uh, of course, if it had been a, a joke, they would have laughed about it and gotcha and that sort of thing. And but anyway, I, I kind of dismissed it. I had a good book going, so I, I kind of hung up the phone on him. But uh, five five minutes later or so, he, he calls back, back, and this time he's he's obviously frightened. He's screaming into the phone, yelling, uh, Sir, we're looking at a, a glowing red object. Uh, it's pulsating uh, light. It's uh, hovering above the front gate about 30 feet long, uh, Scared to death, they got all the all the guards out there with their weapons drawn. Uh, wanted me to tell them what to do next. Uh, of course, I was a kind of in shock. Uh, you know, I, the first thing that came to my mind was we might be under some sort of uh, an attack. Uh, so I, I told them make sure nothing comes in the, the perimeter fence. Uh, and uh, then he, he quickly said he had to go because the uh, one of the guards got injured. Uh, it turned out the, the injury was minor. He, one of the guards was so frightened, I think he tried to climb the fence, which had a, a barbed wire on it. Uh, so he hung up. I went over to talk to Fred Mywald, uh, and just as I was about to tell him about the phone calls, uh, uh, we got a lot of bells and whistles down there, lights going off, uh, 
and uh, the missiles started shutting down we one by one and, um, and I recall all ten of them shut down mm-hmm. uh, and uh, of course we had to report at the command post we had to go through some procedures get maintenance people out there we had uh, security lights also so I, I called back upstairs and uh, and I asked about the UFO and the, and the guard said that it had flown off it was gone but uh, we did have lights uh, security lights, so I had to send uh, guards out. Uh, the guards went out to um, one or two of the facilities, um, and again, they reported back seeing this object uh, flying over uh, or hovering over uh, one of the launch sites. So um, they hightailed it back. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> and so, uh, but eventually the, uh, the, the security alarms were reset. We were able to reset them and uh, so we didn't have to send the guards back out there, but uh, uh, that was it in a nutshell. Um, uh, the next next day we uh, were relieved. Uh, immediately went up, talked to that guard, and and uh, made sure he was uh, serious and telling me the truth. And again, I want to point out that they had no ability to uh, affect our missiles in any way from the top. Uh, they had no controls up there. No, none of the men on duty, in other words. No, no right. maintenance men or security men. Nobody, nobody could have fiddled around with anything. That's right. That's right. Uh, we had all the controls downstairs. I mean, under underground, and um, so uh, it couldn't have been a hoax, and um, they, they couldn't have timed such a hoax to um, as our missiles shut down for for no good reason. Uh, now, let me ask you this, Bob. For a peri- for a short period of time there, if I understand this correctly. You were unable, if you had to launch uh, nuclear weapons in the defense of the United States of America, you were unable to do so. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Now, let me, let me remind our listeners that uh, the conclusion of Project Blue Book in 1969, the, the Air Force in their official statement via uh, the Condon Report acknowledged the reality of UFOs. However, in the same sentence, they said they were not a threat to national security. Now... What you've just explained for the thousandth time, and God God bless you for doing it, uh, is that while while a UFO was hovering, an unidentified flying object, and that's all we're calling it uh, in in this episode, uh, was in close proximity over the, the, the missile launch facility, your nuclear missiles went down and became inoperative. Had we gone to DEFCON 1, you would not have been able to launch the nuclear weapons. Now, if that isn't a threat to national security, I don't know what is. I absolutely agree. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I just I don't see how anybody can argue uh, that point at all. It's just uh, uh, it's just inarguable. It's 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 not defensible. Um, okay, uh, so the, the next day you're debriefed. Take yes. us that if you would. Yeah, we're helicoptered back uh, right away and uh, uh, ordered to go to our squadron commander's office. Uh, we walk in. First thing I ask him is, uh, was this some kind of an Air Force exercise? And he assured me it was not. Uh, he was white as a sheet, couldn't explain what had happened. Uh, we briefly told him from our side what happened, and uh, but uh, there was a guy from AFOSI there, Air Force Office of Special Investigation, and uh, 
all he was concerned about was getting us to sign these non-disclosure statements. I, I kind of balked at that at first because we already had above top secret clearances, both of us. And uh, if uh, my commander told me, you know, not to talk about it, uh, well, I was ordered not to talk about it. I wouldn't do it. But he uh, he insisted that we sign these documents, and about this specific incident, we did, and um, and that was it. From that point on, we were not supposed to talk about it to anybody. Uh, I think the later the either uh, I guess the next day, I got a call from uh, one of those guards um, begging me to come and talk to him about what he had seen and. Uh, and uh, I, I couldn't do it. I told I had to turn him down. I, I, I said, I, I'm not allowed to talk about this anymore. So uh, unfortunately, I was never able to talk to any of the guards again about this. He, he, well, obviously, he was pretty shook up. He was. Uh, they were all shook up. And they really wanted just to get some closure on, you know, uh, just, to, just to talk about it. But sure. uh, I couldn't. Well, their, their attitude, like yours at the time, was, of course, you know, Prior to the incident, it's like the initial call, as you said, you didn't take it seriously. Really, you kind of dismissed it. I mean, oh, UFOs—that's silly nonsense. That was the mindset. Uh, right. That was the public's mindset at the time. That you know, that, right. that's that's just silly. Of course, then he's up topside. He's actually experiencing all this and then relating it down to you. Uh, and, and as is the case with most witnesses, when they have a UFO experience up close and personal, it does have a profound effect on them and oftentimes changes the witness's life uh, as it has done with yours, obviously. Um, in fact, to that end, well, let me, I want to interject one thing, too. The other, back to the flavor of the times, March 24th, in fact, uh, days before and days after, in, in Montana, in that area, and I have the AP article that states that there were UFO reports all over the state of Montana, I might add. In, in particular, the, the, we, we had the incident in Belt, Montana, uh, uh, which was reported that a craft had actually uh, had either landed or got very close to the ground, and the uh, Malmstrom uh, Air Force Base investigated that, along with the Sheriff's Department. Which, in fact, the, as the report goes, uh, they did find uh, uh, physical evidence in the sense of uh, broken uh, uh, bushes and uh, broken tree limbs and that kind of thing uh, where this incident was supposed to have taken place. Now, that's, that's a singular incident in Belt, Montana, but there, were, there was UFO activity all over the area, according to the newspaper reports of the time. Um, so it's not a stretch, obviously, in that, ver in that remote area. Uh, uh, given the fact that there was uh, UFO reports all over the state in the vicinity, uh, that one would fly, uh, even fly over uh, a, uh, uh, one of the nuke uh, launch facilities by accident, if not in fact on purpose, uh, in, in my mind anyway. Um, okay, you, you got debriefed. Uh, did, what, was there anything in the, in the days that followed uh, that was related to, to any of that? in terms of reports or other UFO activity or anything at all, did, or did it just go to sleep? Well, uh, like you said, I, I remember, uh, I think, the day after uh, coming home from alert, uh, picking up the newspaper and reading about reports of UFOs uh, all over the state, like you said. Uh, but as far as uh, uh, information from the, uh, my commander or anybody in the Air Force, uh, about any activity after that, uh, it was nothing, absolutely nothing. We never got 
debriefed about our own incident, um, even though uh, I knew there was activity, uh, there must have been, a, there was activity going on, as I later found out. Uh, investigations were going on, and uh, uh, there was kind of a panic mode. And of course, uh, this was during the uh, Condon Committee investigation period. Um, as you know, uh, Condon Committee was uh, investigating uh, UFOs for the Air Force under contract, and uh, and uh, I'm sure the Air Force wanted to keep this very hush-hush and away from the Condon Committee. Well, and they uh, and obviously this would be a pretty hefty case, but they seem to have ignored it, uh, opposed to some of the other say milder cases that they did take a look at. I mean, yeah. what could be more important than UFO activity at, at, uh, at <laughs> nuclear weapons facilities, for God's sake? Right. But yeah, I, uh, uh, as you know, I, I wrote up an, art, uh, an article on uh, the uh, uh, how the, the Condon Committee failed to report uh, about this, and even though their chief investigator, uh, uh, Dr. Roy Craig, uh, was well aware of at least the Echo Flight incident and probably the Oscar incident, um, uh, soon after it happened. So uh, they obviously avoided uh, investigating this. And they had names to investigate. They, they, they knew who they had to talk to about this, but they didn't do it. Well, and of course, this comes back. Uh, it brings the Bolander memo uh, to mind in regards to serious cases or cases that might affect national security. They bypass the, uh, the, the Blue Book uh, end of it, which, which basically most uh, sober ufologists feel was just a PR campaign anyway. That was just a front. Uh, but uh, uh, serious cases or ones that might affect national security went up the line. Uh, and of course, obviously, this would be this would be the case. Of course. Now, I, I you know, you're sworn to secrecy, so uh, y you have a little bit of activity. You hear some scuttlebutt uh, the days that followed. But I'm I'm presuming that as time went on, that just went to the wayside, and you got back to your life. In, in your normal activities? Right. I uh, never heard another word about it while I was there at all. Um, when so, did it uh, pop back up? When, when did this resurface? Uh, I mean, obviously, it always stayed with you to some degree, but but when was when did it surface again for you? Yeah, it surfaced again in uh, 1994. I was out of the Air Force by then. I, I uh, resigned my commission in 1971. Uh, in 94, I was in Seattle in a bookstore, picked up Timothy Good's book, Above Top Secret. I happened to turn to page 301, and uh, there was a short paragraph there about uh, missiles going down at uh, Malmstrom Air Force Base for strange reasons, and UFOs were reported. Uh, and I got kind of excited about that. I thought, gee, that, that must be my incident. And so maybe the Air Force uh, declassified it. Uh, so I uh, actually uh, contacted MUFON. I uh, got a hold of James Klotz, who was my co-author of, of my book, and um, asked him to uh, submit uh, FOI requests for, for documents uh, and, and not to mention anything about UFOs, just about these missiles going down under unusual circumstances. And, and so he did, and uh, lo and behold, the Air Force writes back, says, uh, you know, this is classified, but since it's been so long, we're going to declassify it. We're going to send you some documents. So, so they did. <laughs> and uh, go ahead. Did, was the 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 part in uh, uh, 
in Above Top Secret, which I have here in front of me somewhere. Was that uh, – did that come from Ray Fowler originally? Yes. Yes, uh, it came from Ray Fowler. Uh, of course, Ray Fowler was working for Sylvania at the time of the Echo and Oscar shutdowns, and uh, from his people uh, in, at Malmstrom, uh, Ray Fowler was on the East Coast, but uh, he heard from his people that uh, the, of these incidents and that UFOs had been involved. And Ray was uh, working, uh, I think uh, he was part of uh, NICAP, I, I believe. Uh, yes. And... Uh, uh, so he was interested in the subject of UFOs. Um, he uh, later uh, was asked by the uh, Christian Science Monitor, I think in 1972, uh, the Christian Science Monitor interviewed him, and uh, Ray told him all about the uh, what he had heard about the echo shutdowns and uh, almost lost his job over that. Uh, but um, I think that's where uh, Timothy Good heard about the echo shutdowns and then put it in his book uh you, my hat's off to, to tim he's he's an excellent researcher <laughs> absolutely yeah that's great the uh, uh and of course uh, fowler has spoken recently uh he wasn't there at the uh at the press conference but he has lent his voice and reiterated what happened so he he in fact he, uh, he is another witness to the collective of witnesses in regards to the preponderance of all the witness in support of uh, the activity at echo and oscar flights uh i i might add um the, the one of the things that i don't think is um clarified enough now and, and i i I'll have to say that I've been privy to listen to a lot of the telephonic recordings that both you and, and Robert Hastings had performed, um, which are absolutely fascinating. And, and I might add, they uh, they shore up everything that you've been saying word for word for years uh, with the people, with the witnesses that were there and involved. Uh, for example, like uh, Walter Fiegel uh, in regards to Echo Flight, uh, and of course your commander Fred Mywald. Um, but the the, uh, the what I got in listening to all these different people, at, at malfunctions to that degree were were very rare. In fact, for ten missiles to go down at the time, that was unprecedented. Am I correct? Absolutely. Uh, I was on duty for three years at Malmstrom uh, as a deputy and then again as a commander, and r rarely did one missile go down uh, and stay down. Uh, and so for multiple missiles to go down at any time was extremely rare. Uh, and yeah. Well, and I'm going somewhere with this. The, my, my point, and, and I was having this debate the other day, as I mentioned to you earlier, um, you as a researcher and, and as a witness, so many years after the fact, it's now 1994, uh, you've got Klotz in there giving you a hand, he's doing uh, FOIA requests, and you get some stuff declassified. It mentions the missile malfunctions, and, and I think they've got one line in there. Uh, I think they mentioned UFOs once, which they just kind of poo-pooed that. But the fact is that they did uh, admit 10 missiles going down. Now, 
My argument is, since that was unprecedented and, and these malfunctions were so rare, specifically for 10 missiles, uh, it's a very plausible explanation to me and most sensible people that obviously you would think that that was uh, the flight that you were involved in for the simple fact that these things didn't happen. Uh, I mean, they were rare. Um, and I bring this up because the naysayers, and you've been fighting this battle for years, uh, uh, they want to use that against you in regards to the early confusion that you had between Echo and Oscar flights. Could, could you just elaborate on that a little bit, please? Yeah, sure. Uh, of course, all these capsules look the same inside. Uh, there's nothing to dist really to distinguish one from another. Uh, even the launch facilities are almost identical. Um, so, and uh, I must say at times, uh, if uh, a particular squadron, I was in the 490th squadron, of course, I remembered that. I've even, I've even still got my jacket, which says 490th missile squadron on it. I, I knew I was in the 490th, and the 490th only handled uh, Kilo, Lima, Mike, November, and Oscar. Uh, so, but still, the uh, incident that was reported was so uh, identical to what I recall that I thought I might have been there. I, I, I was there because um, at times when uh, when the, the, uh, there were some crews that were sick, uh, they would ask other squadrons to pitch in and, and, and take over a flight. So uh, it, it's not out of the realm of possibility that I, I could have been at Echo Flight and and that's what I thought when I first read that. It wasn't until much later when I, I was able to contact Fred Mywald that he corrected me and said, oh, no, we were at Oscar flight. Mm -hmm. And and by then I had already been speaking out quite a bit uh, on, on this incident. Uh, and uh, But I later corrected it, and, and of course, uh, we, we were at Oscar flight, not Echo flight. And was Fred the first one that you uh, got a hold of from back then? No, actually, I, I got a hold of um, of uh, the Echo Flight crew first and talked to them. I, as a matter of fact, I think Don Crawford, who was also a member of the 10th Squadron, which uh, he, he went out to Echo Flight, uh, was the first one I contacted. Uh, so it was a process of, of first trying to recall who the heck my commander was at the time. For a long time, I didn't I didn't remember. Um, like you say, it was a, a long period of time. Uh, I had gone through uh, some personal problems. I went through a divorce in 1968, and you know, you know, I, I got remarried. I had children. Uh, you know, uh, just living life. Uh, you, sure, you gotta, life's you going on. Get these little details. Yeah. Right, you bet. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, well, so you, you got a hold of Crawford first, uh, then you got a hold of Fiegel. I think so. I think it went in that sequence, and then after Fiegel, I got a hold of Carlson. Right. And then, and then uh, after that, I think uh, I got a hold of Mywald. I think Mywald was after that. In that order. Now we know, of course, today that uh, uh, Fiegel and Carlson. Carlson was the commander of Echo Flight. And, and Fiegel was in your position. He was deputy commander. Right. Uh, and, and again, of course, now at this point, when, when you got a hold of Fiegel, you, you uh, or at least when you interviewed Fiegel on the phone, at that point, you, you were aware that you were at Oscar flight. You had uncovered enough information at that well, point. 
Well, I, uh, yeah, I guess, uh, I guess that's right. I, I, when I got a hold of Fiegel, I realized that he was at the Echo flight and uh, I was at the Oscar flight. Or, uh, you know, at, at also the uh, one of the reports, uh, the uh, unit history report, talks about uh, uh, investigators in interviewing November flight security guards. Now, uh, at one point, I thought I, I could have been at November flight because, uh, again, like I said, I was a, a commander after my uh, my teaming up with my wall, I became a, a missile crew commander, and I was at November flight uh, more often than not. So, uh, you know, again, this was part of the confusion of uh, you know, at one point I may have said uh, I, maybe I was at November flight. <laughs> right. Well, it, the, my point is is that uh, uh, this is a complete plausible explanation. And, I, you know, I, I got into this debate with a, a naysayer the other day, and, and I said, you know, I realize uh, it's easier for you. You'd like to throw stones and, uh, and call people that you don't know and, and veterans of, of the United States Air Force uh, liars and so forth and so on, or or that you you think that uh, you know their motivation is the riches that they get off of a UFO book, and I said you know quite frankly it's all ludicrous, and I said the only thing that should be coming out of your mouth is thank you for your service to this country, and but the point is uh, you know myself as a researcher I go where the evidence takes me, and and you have to look at plausibility in anything. And I think all, you know all of this makes uh, a complete sense. And again, what sticks with me is uh, the the rarity of the event. I mean, what you know, every, one thing that everybody uh, is in agreement with is that uh, uh, for ten missiles to go down, it was unheard of. In fact, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Fiegel says that on tape. I think in the first interview with you, he point blank says that that it's just it was unheard of. I believe so, you're right. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I believe you're right about that. yeah. Obviously, you would think when you're un when you're going through the fog of memory, and you do uncover the the information, or you uh, you get the uh, uh, via the uh, Freedom Information Act request, you get the, the data from the Air Force, and it says Echo. Certainly, it's uh, you would think that that's what it was. Now, getting to Fiegel, uh, and by the way, having listening, uh, listened to the entire telephonic interview, which just had me at the edge of my seat, and by the way, for our listeners, three of the, uh, uh, the recorded interviews are at the UFO Chronicles under the article, uh, the, uh, uh, the Witch Hunt, uh, written by uh, uh, the Echo Flight Witch Hunt, I think is what uh, Hastings entitled it. Um, you can you can search the site and you'll find it and you can listen in their own words you can listen to Walt Fiegel Fred Mywald uh, and we also have Kaminsky uh, in there um, and two two of the audio tapes uh, uh, snippets uh, with Fiegel now the interesting thing that I found in the first interview that did that uh, that you did with Fiegel that not only did he verify the UFO activity over uh, Echo Flight, he did so enthusiastically, I felt. I mean, it, it was like, uh, oh. I, you know, I don't want to oversell it, but my, I mean, you could, the, uh, the, the difference in, in tone between your first interview in 96, was it? Right, it was 96. Yeah, and then later, I think uh, Robert interviewed him in 2008, if I'm not mistaken. 
Mm -hmm. Now, although he confirmed all the activity in 2008, the, the enthusiasm wasn't there as it was with you. I mean, between, between your event, what you were sharing with your personal experience, and what he was sharing, uh, you know, it was like two kids in the candy store. Uh, I mean, he was very, very enthusiastic about sharing this information, I felt. Right. Uh, you have to understand, uh, when we first contacted each other, we, it was just like uh, old friends. You know, we, we knew each other at the time, of course, and uh, it was just good to hear from an old friend. And, uh, of course, uh, he was kind of excited to tell me, uh, you know, his incident, and, and I relayed my incident, and it was just good times. Right. Uh, for, in 2008, of course, uh, he realized that uh, I, I was outspoken about this, had been speaking about it, and 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 now he, he he was a little more conservative because uh good grief i mean uh, uh you know he's still he's still working in the industry or he was at the time um, sure and so he's worried about his reputation of course yeah and to be clear he was certainly conservative but he confirmed everything once again in 2008 i've listened to that tape now probably a half a dozen times uh, he, he doesn't, uh, and he's also clear, uh, he, I think he used the phrase, I don't believe in UFOs, but this is what happened. So he, he's, he's clear on his own personal opinion, but he does not deny the events that took place. And I think that's important because there's so many naysayers out there, uh, well, not so many, but there's, there's a, a, a contingent uh, that keeps trying to say that Fiegel didn't say what he said. And, of course, you can listen to it in his own words at the UFO Chronicles on those tapes. Uh, and it's not, there's no if, and, or maybe. He is clear, and he says so on a number of occasions in each one of the telephonic interviews. Uh, you, you asked point-blank questions, he answered them. And Robert asked point-blank questions, and he answered them in the affirmative in regards to UFO activity when the missiles went down. And, by the way, uh, all the activity in, in the Echo Flight incident, uh, uh, all the activity afterwards, uh, because a lot of the big wheels came rolling in, uh, as I recall, that, that he admitted to, in regards uh, to debriefing and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. Uh, he, he told me that he had been interviewed by at, at SAC headquarters or by SAC headquarters, and um, uh, they were very interested in his logs and... Um, yeah, there was a lot of brass in the area, so uh, absolutely. And he said, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, he wrote a very detailed log when you interviewed him. Yes. And he said, he, he even told me then that he had a, a copy of that log and was going to look for it, but uh, I've never heard back from that. Yeah, I thought, I do recall him saying that. I thought that was uh, that was interesting because his... His demeanor, by the time Hastings interviews him, his demeanor is completely different. Uh, he, and, he, uh, and, of course, since then, uh, if, if we presume the, the hearsay from other people, that perhaps he, he's now trying to backpedal. I might, let me throw in this, too. I, I don't know the man. I listened to those uh, lengthy interviews that you did with him uh, as, as well as Hastings, and he just he seems like a decent guy, upstanding guy, and he's a veteran. And, I mean, you know he ha he has all of my respect uh, as far as that goes, and I he doesn't I I don't know what the situation is about what we've heard about him perhaps trying to reverse himself, but as as Callahan said, you know 
in his instance, he said, do you want to believe the, the government? Or in his instance, he said, or your lying eyes. In this case, it, of course, it would be your lying ears. Uh, but he, he is on tape, and there's no question uh, uh, in regards to him affirming the UFO activity uh, that took place at Echo Flight. And by the way, for our listeners, uh, these two events between Echo and Oscar took place uh, eight days apart. Is that correct, Bob? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Echo Flight went down on the uh, 16th of March, um, Oscar on the 24th. The, um, well, now that kind of pulls us up to the press conference. Uh, wh why don't you explain to our listeners how that came about and, and what you hope to uh, accomplish with that? Well, uh, Robert Hastings and I had been talking about, uh, you know, we've been collaborating for, for a few years, and, uh, and finally we decided uh, uh, we had so many witnesses that could uh, uh, support the, uh, uh, the idea, not the idea, but the fact that uh, UFOs had been seen at nuclear bases that uh, we thought, why not bring all uh, some of these people together and we'll have a press conference and, and try to, you know, make make this issue uh, uh, make this a strong issue, and and that's what we did. We we just kind of uh, you know uh, organized the thing. We planned it. Uh, we asked the public for donations. Uh, we decided we weren't going to associate ourselves with any particular group or uh, or take money from any particular groups. Uh, we wanted this to be a grassroots effort, and as it turned out, it was. We we did get. A substantial number of donations. In the end, we, uh, Robert Hastings especially, had to go in, in, into debt a little bit, and I, I've gone into debt a little bit to uh, uh, to make this happen. But we thought it was worthwhile, and as it turned out, it was. <laughs> I, I, pardon me for laughing, but I always it I, 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 it, it brings up the notion that. Uh, for the ignorant that, that's out there that, uh, uh, you know, everybody thinks that there's just all these riches that are stowed upon the authors of UFO books, when quite frankly, when you put UFO in the title of most books, it's the kiss of death, with very few exceptions. And uh, it, it just kills me, uh, you know, so the, the intelligence of some of these characters. But uh, God true. bless you for doing that. And, uh, and, and that's, you know, that's the battle. People don't realize that people that take this uh, uh, this field, if we can call it that, seriously, uh, you know, there's no money in it, <laughs> with very, very few uh, rare exceptions. Uh, it, you're usually coming out of pocket if you care about it uh, uh, that much. And, and once again, uh, I, I don't know how many times I've said it, and I've, quite frankly, I've interviewed a lot of people right here in the Joyner report that uh, these instances have affected people's lives, their entire lives. I mean, obviously, as this incident for you has. And there's, uh, there's really a, a bigger theme to just the UFO event uh, in regards to, to the government as a whole and the secrecy. Would, would you like to elaborate on that? Uh, yes. Uh, the government and the Air Force in particular is covering up what they know about UFOs and um, and in doing that, um, they're you know actually lying to the public uh, about uh, about these objects and, and the phenomenon as a whole. Uh, to me, this is an abuse of secrecy. Government, uh, obviously, the uh, government uh, 
agencies have the right to uh, make things secret, and we do need secrets. I'm not saying we don't have to have secrets, but uh, something like this, with, which affects the public as a whole, um, is really undemocratic, in my opinion, because uh, it keeps the public uninformed about what their government knows about this a very important topic. Uh, and as we know, uh, an informed public is essential uh, for good democratic government. Uh, and that's that's what really uh, sticks in my craw, and, and one of the reasons I, I keep I keep talking about this. Well, and and they look, it's the last time I checked, or at least it's supposed to be we the people. Uh, this is a, this is a democracy, and uh, and they and these these factions have to remember who they work for, and so I'm I'm right with you uh, in that regard, and and I salute you, you know, for those efforts. Um, did, was there? Uh, we've got about a minute left. Was was there an interview in particular after the uh, the press conference? I, you know, we're so used to having the media ask such stupid questions. Was there one that stuck in your mind that went the other way that uh, that was a positive experience? Uh, you know, uh, what was encouraging to me is that most of the interviews I had afterwards, and I had a bunch. Believe me, we we got inundated with requests for interviews um, were very uh, affirming uh, supportive uh, we didn't get laughed at <laughs> and I think it was because the, our witnesses and uh, were, were so credible uh, yeah. they all did an outstanding job and my hats off to them I I congratulate every one of them for a great job and a, yeah. and and, they, uh, they were home run hitters. Real, real quick, Bob, uh, what's your website where people can learn more about this? We've got uh, just a few seconds left. Yeah, spiralgalaxy.org. Uh, they can go and, and listen to the uh, links to the, the testimony of each witness. Uh, they can uh, see the report I wrote on the uh, UFO cover-up by the Air Force. And in addition to that, uh, whatever isn't there between the UFO Chronicles and your site, uh, we have a plethora of information in regards to uh, the UFO nuke situation. I believe most of your articles that you've written are there. All of the articles that, that uh, Robert Hastings has written are there. There's more information to come. You guys are going to be releasing some of the other uh, audio recorded uh, interviews that were done a little while back. Um, on that note, Bob, uh, we are at the top of the hour, and as usual, time has just flown by. I really want to thank you for participating in tonight's show, and I hope we can get back on this and, and pick it up again soon uh, where we're leaving uh, off here. Um, and just once again, I, uh, uh, my hat's off to you in, uh, in regards to your service for this country, and I thank you so much for coming on the Joiner Report. Thank you, Frank. It's really been my honor. Thank you very much. Okay, we'll do it again next time. And in our second hour, we'll, we will be joined by retired Colonel Dwin Arneson, another member of the group that testified in the recent press conference in Washington, as well as serving at Maelstrom Air Force Base during the missile shutdowns and the UFO activity. You're listening to the Joiner Report on the UFO Paranormal Radio Network, WPRN-FM in New Orleans, and we'll be right back. multifaceted possibilities. This program will broadcast live Saturday evenings on the Paranormal Radio Network. 
Good evening and welcome to this week's worldwide broadcast of The Joyner Report. Now here's your host, Angela Joyner. And we're back. I'm Frank Warren, in for Angela tonight, and you're listening to The Joyner Report on the UFO Paranormal Radio Network, WPRN-FM in New Orleans. My next guest, retired U.S. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Dwyane Arnie Arneson, was the officer in charge at the Communications Center of Malmstrom Air Force Base, Montana, in 1967 when he read a classified message concerning the sighting of a UFO hovering over one of the base's Minuteman 1 launch facilities, a.k.a. silos, just as several missiles mysteriously malfunctioned. Although Colonel Arneson doesn't recall the designation of the missile flight mentioned, researchers now know that two UFO-related full-flight shutdowns involving 10 missiles each took place at Malmstrom in March of that year at both ECHO and Oscar flights. Arnie, I want to thank you for your service to this country, and like Bob, your courage to step up and share what you know with the American public. Welcome to the Joiner Report. Well, thank you very much. Um, you know, I, I know that you've had, uh, in talking to you privately, I know you've had a long interest in UFOs. Uh, I know you got involved early on, and I want to talk about that a little later. Uh, what, I, what I would like to do, uh, I'd like to just work backwards. If you wouldn't mind, could you explain to our listeners uh, how you got involved with the press conference? Well, as it happens... I got I got involved through Bob uh, Bob Salas. Rob and I have been friends for about ten years. We were we were witnesses for Dr. Greer back in 2001 at the National Press Conference, also, mm -hmm. and when he testified to the same thing as as I have testified to, and so we we've been in contact for about ten years on this. And as it happened, that's the reason he said, you know, how about being a witness um, on this particular effort? And I said, well, if you feel I'm worthwhile, I guess, uh, yeah, put me on. So that's how we got involved. You know, having watched that uh, when it was uh, a webcast, uh, which, of course, was a new thing back then, um, Greer, as a researcher and his involvement in ufology, takes a lot of flack. But one thing that he did get right was putting that group of witnesses together, in, in my personal opinion. Uh, I thought that that had a great impact uh, in regards to the caliber of witnesses and, and who they were. Um, and just, you know, putting that together in that way was, was just fantastic. And, of course, you know, which segues into the event uh, that happened at the Washington Press Club uh, in September. Um, what? Uh, well, why, go ahead and, and, if you would, j just take us back to that day in March '67. Uh, what, what basically happened from your perspective? Well, basically, um, I was the communication electronics officer in charge of the communication center at the 28th Air Division in Great Falls, Montana. And what what happened? In that we get we got hundreds of messages a day that came through our communications center from from all over, and one of the things that one of the responsibilities I had was to review the messages to make certain that our internal procedures were you know proper and all this and that, and do some follow up at Phoebe. So I happened to come across that message, and I said, "Wow, you know, well, I didn't know." 
echo flight from Oscar flight or anything else. So I couldn't relate to that. Um, as, a, as, as part of my responsibilities in that job, I was also the top secret control officer for the division. I was the cryptographic officer. That is, I passed out nuclear launch authenticators to the various SAC missile crews and the, the fighter scepters, interceptor squadrons. And uh, so I was involved somewhat with the, the SAC people. But well, you had, a, you had a serious job, in other words. I mean... Well, it, uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty, when you pass out nuclear launch authenticators to the SAC missile crews. That's yeah, uh, pretty, pretty damn serious. <laughs> that's pretty serious. Yeah. You have to have two-man control procedures and all this and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, you have to have a, I had a top-secret cryptocurrency at that time. Mm -hmm. um, I had a higher clearance later on in my career, but that was, that was pretty good for, for beginners. Would was there an average could, could you label an average uh, or associate an average of communication or communiques on a, on any given day no lordy no there were there were hundreds uh, on on a given day from all over all over the country. no I, well, I, I what can't i'm give you an average. what i'm getting at i'm wondering if there was a spike uh, during the missile shutdowns as, as you would think there would be well, yeah, you would think so. Uh, I didn't, I didn't key upon that, but I, I, I can see where you come from mm -hmm. in that respect. And I never went back to do any checking on that. Mm -hmm. um, no, I, I have no idea if there was or was not. Well, so when you when you see these, when you see the communiques, I mean, what's going through your mind? What what? Uh... Well, back back in those days, the there was kind of a a lid put on any kind of UFO kind of stuff. You know, people, they say, don't get involved. It was, it was not a written policy that I can recall, but, you know, don't talk about UFOs. And if you if you saw one, forget it. And then it was kind of, it was kind of put the, the kibosh on if you had any kind of knowledge of that kind of stuff. It wasn't talked about very much. It was discouraged, in fact. Well, actually, you had the AFR 200 where technically uh, it was military law. You would, uh, you could uh, get fined and, uh, and uh, you know, penalized in, in a number of ways. So that wasn't just said. That was, uh, you can go to AFR 200, which actually, uh, I think, was born in the 50s. Now, opposed to Bob, now, of course, you, you got involved uh, with UFOs earlier on. So I would say that you were more open-minded uh, when this, when these events took place in '67. More open-minded about uh, about what? Now, but you know, Bob, for example, if you heard—I don't know if you listened to the, the the first hour, but when when he first got the call uh, from the guy up top, and this guy is reporting a UFO, Bob uh, Bob like Walt Fink, for that matter, he just dismissed it. He he didn't take it seriously. Uh, uh, you know, you had more oh. knowledge about UFOs in '67 than most, I would imagine. Oh, uh, I see so, where you're I, I see where you're coming from. You understand? Yes, I certainly do. Yeah, I had an interest in UFOs uh, that goes back, oh, Lordy, back to the early 50s. I was, in fact, part of the, uh, I guess, one of the original members of the NICAP. That was Major Keyhole's organization. Right. The National Investigation Committee on the Aerial Phenomena. That's correct. So right. I, had a, I had an interest in that a long, long before the 
thing took place back in March of 67. And, and I want to get to that in, in a minute. Uh, you, you had some interesting anecdotes that, uh, that we'll get to, but, um, but back to 67 just for a moment. What, one of the other things that people forget, naysayers in regards to UFOs tend to put blinders on. And uh, one of the things that, uh, uh, that is, uh, has been established uh, in regards to the reports, uh, both from uh, mainstream newspapers uh, and things that have been called out of Project Blue Book, was there was a lot of uh, UFO activity across the state of Montana in March of 1967. Do you recall any of those events outside of uh, your job in, in regards to the communications? Uh, no, I, I don't recall, I'll be honest. <laughs> well, that's okay. The, uh, the, the point being was that there was, in fact, actually uh, in one instance, uh, Malmstrom uh, uh, sent helicopters out. They were, there was an invest In fact, they sent a strike team out to the, the one incident at, uh, at Belt, Montana. Um, and there was another one where they, uh, I, I have the, uh, uh, the newspaper reports out of that at the UFO Chronicles, where they literally did UFO investigations in the month of March 1967. And the point that I'm trying to make out of this, uh, you know, to get, get it right in, in the average person's mind's eye, you know, you've got all these missile silos spread out in, in Montana. Uh, I, I think what the, the Oscar flight was uh, near Roy, Montana, and to this day I think there's only, it's a population of about two or 300 people, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, you know, so, so it's pretty sparse. So anything, uh, a, a, a lit-up UFO at nighttime, uh, you know, would, could be seen for miles. I mean, they call it the big sky country for a reason. Uh, but, but there was, in fact, a lot of activity in that month. So it's, it, uh, you know, it's not a stretch to understand why uh, security personnel that were topside uh, in regards to missile silos would see something. Of course, it, in the specific instances that we're, we're referring to in regards to Echo Flight or Oscar Flight, they saw something up close and personal, opposed to uh, in, in the distance. But uh, what, uh, you know, from that point on, did that was that a major effect for you? Uh, I mean, was that something that uh, got your attention at the time, and then uh, you set well, to the wayside, or what? It, it got it got my attention, but the, the thing was in the the communication electronics field, especially as regards crypto and whatnot, it was ingrained in us to, you know, what you see here, leave here, you know. Right. Don't don't talk about it afterwards because, you know, we worked with top secrets so much. Um, it's just that's just the way it was. Sure. Sure. Did. Uh when was the next time that you recall hearing anything about the events of March 1967? Well, as it happened, after I retired from the airport, I went to work for Boeing as a computer systems analyst. And one of my first supervisors at Boeing was uh, Mr. Bob Kaminsky. Mm -hmm. Now, as it happened to be, uh, we were good friends when I worked for him. And, he, and then he retired, and he lived close by me here in, uh, in, in Washington State, and on different occasions, we would get together for breakfast and talk over things, and, and come to find out, he was the <clears throat> the engineer that Boeing sent to investigate the missiles, you know, the missiles being shut down. Right. And uh, on different occasions, he, he told me, he says, those missiles were perfectly clean. 
did not go down by themselves, and then he says, uh, halfway through the investigation, the Air Force sent Boeing a message saying, stop the investigation and do not, he says, and do not repeat, not send us a report. Yeah, he uh, he wrote that, uh, he affirms that in his book, the uh, which I have, the, the title escapes me. And we also, as I mentioned in the first hour, we have a snippet of, a, uh, of an interview that he did uh, years back, uh, prior to his passing, obviously, where he again affirms in his own words, uh, the, not only does he affirm the missile shutdown, but he also talks about the UFOs in close proximity as he heard it at the time. Uh, the, and the other thing, uh, he, he stands uh, uh, with the majority that says, uh, these incidents were rare. I mean, malfunctions were re rare, period. And, of course, 10 missiles going down was unprecedented. It just oh. didn't happen, as everybody would tell you. Yeah. No, there were, there were so many safeguards on those missiles, and the, the redundancy, the duplication and whatnot, it was, it was absolutely fantastic. I didn't have any idea of how complex those things were. I, in a later assignment, when I was... Uh, I was a missile launch officer at uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base, and we used to launch space satellites from there. And I, I got an appreciation then how complex these missiles were. Right. Did, did now what year was that with Kaminsky that you uh, that you met up with him? I'm sorry, I missed that. Well, that was oh Lord, that was. Oh, I don't know, in the late 90s, I guess it was. I see. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, it was considerably after 1967 mm -hmm. because I retired from the Air Force in 1986. So it must have been in the early 90s that we, uh, that Bob and I got, you know, got connected with that. But he, he told me that personally on, the, on different occasions. So I, uh, I'm an eyewitness to that or ear witness or whatever you want to call it. Sure. Well, now, in addition to that, as, as time goes by, you heard that from uh, Kaminsky. Uh, we know that the, uh, the, the, the Fowler snippet uh, was put in Timothy Good's book. When was the next time that you heard something about that, uh, about the Echo Flight incident and or, and or Oscar flight? I, I cannot recall on that. I'll be, I'll be very frank. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When Bob testified to it, of course, that's, I guess that's the next time I really heard about it. Back in 2001. So, so somewhere, say 2000, 2001, 1999 is when you guys got together. Or? Uh, 2001 is when we got together. Yeah. And in fact, uh, as it happened, I happened to hear him on the Art Bell show, and I he kept hearing about this guy talking about missile problems and being you know, shut down or whatnot. And I kept thinking, who in the heck is this guy? And Art Bell. Did not like to use last names with people that he interviewed. He was it was a Bob, Bob, you know. So, right. So he was interviewing this Bob guy about well, Bob Salas, of course. And then later on, the the second guy that came on the radio was also a Bob. And later, as I listened to that, I said, "Well, I know that voice." And that was <laughs> Bob Kaminsky. That was yeah. the the engineer who also came on to the RPL show that night. And that's how I got in contact with, uh, you know, with Bob Solis. He used to live up here in Bellevue at that time. Yeah, 
we, well, we were talking about that, the, the uh, Art Bell interviews during the break. Um, you know, it's, it, there's actually meaning behind that madness in regards to not using somebody's last name. You know, uh, as the uh, editor, publisher of the UFO Chronicles, we get UFO reports all the time. And as a rule, I do not, I always uh, post the uh, reports uh, anonymously unless somebody bends my arm uh, to put their name in it. And what I've found, uh, it, it particularly depending on somebody's position, if they're military or, uh, you know, or, you know, corporate head or what they might be, uh, you know, they don't want their name out in the public domain attached to a UFO story, contrary to, to popular thinking. You know, people do not want uh, to, you know, be attached to, uh, well, the stigma, actually, of, of ufology. And okay. I found that, that publishing the, uh, the reports this way, we get a lot more people uh, that, that it frees them up to, to share the information. And I always tell them, look, if you want me to use your name, I'd be happy to do so. But as long as I, you know, I have to know their name, obviously, uh, and, uh, and depending on the anecdote, uh, particularly if it's a military situation, then of course we'll vet them properly and so forth and so on. Um, right. But there is a reason for that, and, and we do we end up getting more witnesses that way. And speaking of which, one of the things that I mentioned this in the first hour, we did get another report in, and it, I have not vetted the uh, uh, the witness entirely just yet, but I feel very good about it. Uh, of another missileer that had a very similar experience uh, to Bob's and or Walt Fiegel's and or Carlson's uh, mm -hmm. at another Air Force base altogether, not Malmstrom. This, this mm -hmm. isn't another uh, a missileer that, uh, uh, as a witness to one of those events, this is a completely separate event uh, at another Air Force base in the late 60s that uh, had to do with UFOs in close proximity to the missile silo and the missiles malfunctioning. So I'm looking forward, and by the way, this was completely precipitated by the press conference. This guy, a friend of this guy, uh, heard about the press conference, read a couple of my articles, uh, read the press release, and he reached out to me and said, I know this guy. And, uh, and I've since spoken with him, and I asked him if he could arrange a, uh, a meeting. He's done that. Um, so far, everything sounds real good. I, I feel real comfortable with this. I don't think there's any funny business. Uh, the first guy checks out. If the information that I've got so far all checks out. Uh, but, you know, we're still away from it, from uh, confirming everything. I'd, of course, I'd have to see a DD-214, et cetera, et cetera. But, but it's looking yeah. good. The, the, main, the main point is, is that, the, that sharing the information and you guys having the courage to step up and come forward and share this information, uh, it's had positive effects. Uh, and hopefully more and more people uh, specific to this um, subcategory of ufology in regards to uh, you know, UFOs and nuclear weapons or nuclear uh, uh, facilities will, you know, more and more people will come forward after they see that you guys have stepped up to the plate. And I, you know, I can't thank you enough. Uh, you know, it takes courage, literally, to, to get out and do that. A lot of people don't, don't think so, but it does, uh, you know, particularly for somebody in your position. I didn't think it did, but uh, I guess people say it does. I don't know. <laughs> Well, it, it does get, you know, people are afraid uh, of the stigma that's attached to it. 
you know, you're a retired colonel, uh, people that have titles or, or uh, depending on somebody's position where they work, uh, they don't want that rubbed on them. And, uh, you know, and a, a, of course, a good many people will speak confidentially. They don't want to go public. It, it takes, uh, I think it takes a lot of courage to step up to the plate like you did. And uh, mm -hmm. God bless you for doing it. But, uh, well, what take us back... Um, Let's go back to NICAP. Uh, when did you first get get involved in ufology to begin with? No, that was um, that was shortly after the Roswell thing. I was just a youngster at that time, but but I, I read that report and it says you know something something doesn't sound right there. So mm -hmm. I don't know. I was always I was always interested in astronomy and whatnot. In fact, when I was 12 years old, I built my first telescope out of a piece of tubing, and it was very, very crude. And I can recall many a night back in the winter, back in Minnesota, being out there with my telescope, just freezing my fanny off mm -hmm. and uh, looking at the moon and whatnot. And they say it was very crude, but I uh, I made it I made it happen. I, I was just always interested in that stuff at a very young age for some reason. Mm -hmm. did, did did you have any signs back in those days yourself? Uh, no, no, not at all. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Did that, now you joined NICAP early on mm -hmm. uh, in the 50s. Uh, what, did, did you ever meet Kehoe? No, I did not. I have his books, but I never met the man personally. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I do have an audio tape uh, someplace in my <clears throat> archives here between uh, Major Cahill and uh, Lieutenant Colonel Spence Whedon that uh, I found very interesting. But that happened later, a long, long time ago. He had yeah. an interview uh, on the Armstrong Circle Theater back in the 1950s between the two of them. And uh, that's a different story in itself. <laughs> right. Hello? Interviews with Cahill. I'm I'm still with you, Arnie. Can you hear me? Yes. The uh, anyway, for the benefit of our listeners, I do have one of the the uh, uh, interviews uh, posted at the UFO Chronicles. I do not have the one uh, that you have, and if you can find that, I would be happy to digitize that for you. I will look for it. Yeah, that would be very very interesting. Um, did you now? What was your capacity uh, in regards to the uh, to NICAP? Were you a field investigator, or? No, no, no. I was just a member. Uh -huh. I was so young at that time. I must have been, oh, I don't know, 13, 14 years old, something like that. But I, uh -huh. <laughs> no, I was in no capacity of any kind. Just, just right. a member. Well, you were caught up in it, like the whole country was at that time. This is something that, uh, of course, a lot of our younger listeners aren't aware of. Uh, you know the the. Uh, the UFOs or back then flying saucers didn't get shuffled to the back page. It was front page news, and uh, you know people wanted to know what was going on. I mean, from from the the summer of '47, that what we deem modern day ufology, beginning with Kenneth Arnold's sighting, uh, up to '52 and thereafter. Uh, it, you know, this in fact the, the largest press conference post World War II happened in 50, the summer of 52 in Washington, uh, and it was all about flying saucers. People wanted to know, which, by the way, Kehoe uh, attended that conference. He was in the audience uh, as a journalist. 
and people wanted to know what was going on. The military uh, at least overtly claimed to want to know what was going on. Uh, the, uh, in terms of shoving this under the rug, that really wasn't in play just yet. That didn't come in uh, till the Robertson panels uh, get together in 53. But uh, I, I just find it interesting for, from somebody that has lived through that area, uh, or, or, uh, or time period, I should say, uh, you know, you felt it. You, you, you saw what was going on. Not, uh, a couple of years back, we, we, uh, we published a piece on, on all the activity that took place in the summer of 52, and a reader uh, came in and, and chimed in on that, and he said as a young man, he was driving with his family, and he says, you know, people don't get the gist of what was going on. Of course, this is when, uh, you know, when, when we were sending aircraft out chasing flying saucers, literally, back oh, in yeah. the summer of 52. And this, this gentleman, a young man at the time, said, he says he recalls his family, his dad pulling over on the side of the road uh, in that vicinity. I, I forget the exact area. I, I think he said he was next to the, the uh, Potomac. And he says everybody on the road literally pulled over and got out of the car to look up at these things. And he says, he says, you never get the gist of it reading some of these reports. But he says, this was serious business, and, and these things were all over the place. And everybody knew about it. You know, oh, this yeah. wasn't something like today that's get, that gets put on page 27. Uh, he says, you know, it was the talk of the town. And, uh, you know, nobody knew. Uh, he, you know, the military were chasing after these things, but nobody had an explanation. And so you literally lived through that, that time period. Well, I guess uh, part of it also was the, the situation between us and Russia at that time. You know, we didn't know if they were Russians or, or what. So I, I think that probably contributed to it. Well, and that's true. That there was common thinking at, at the time. Of course, if we go back to Project Paperclip, you know, let's face it, the Germans put us on the moon, and of yep. course, scientists, the Russian scientists, and and, uh, uh, and German scientists or German scientists, rather, were split between us and, and the, the then Soviet Union. And, uh, uh, yeah, so we didn't know what they were doing, and, and they didn't know what we were doing. Or I mean, there's a lot of speculation. Um, but, yeah, that, uh, and, and, again, that, that's another thing in, in regards to explaining the flavor of the times, you know, the beginning of the Cold War and how, and, and how tense everything was back in those days. Uh, and, you know, and let's face it, we're, you know, we've all got new missiles. We were testing uh, missiles out in New Mexico, and, and, uh, and most certainly a lot of the sightings were uh, post-investigation, uh, you know, could, uh, would have a conventional explanation. The higher percentages always have, but it's that smaller percentage of UFO sightings that didn't and still don't to this day, uh, which, of course, is what we're interested in. Yeah. But... Um, what, uh, how long were you in Nightcap? When did that peter out? Oh, Lordy. I, I, I just, just a few years. Mm -hmm. I was heavily involved in high school or whatnot at that time, so I, I don't recall when it petered out, but I, I didn't, I don't think it lasted that much longer. It was probably in the late 50s that it, that it probably petered out. Now, did you did you get away from ufology altogether at that point, or? Well, no, no. I've had an active interest in it for about the last still oh, sixty years thereabouts. I've read an awful lot about UFOs. I could talk about UFOs for 
for hours, I guess, on end, so to speak. But it's probably well, some interest in mine. It, you, well, we do get spitting, don't we? You you shared uh, an interesting anecdote with me privately uh, when you were stationed at Wright Pat. Is that something you, uh, we can talk about? If you want to. <laughs> Lay it on me. I, I thought that was rather interesting. Well, it's, it's your nickel. So, uh, yeah, basically, <laughs> uh, I mentioned an interview between Major Kehoe and Lieutenant Colonel Spence Whedon. Uh, back in the, in the 80s, late 80s, Time frame. I was assigned as a director of logistics at uh, Wright Patterson Air Force Base. My uh, my daughter was a senior in high school in Oklahoma City at that time, so I did not take the family and move them to to Dayton, Ohio. I just took an unaccompanied tour, as they call it in the Air Force. I happened to get a uh, a room. This one lady called. Her name was Chris Whedon. As it turned out, she was the widow of uh, Lieutenant Colonel Spence Whedon, and she had rooms for rent. So she had three bedrooms, and I took her up on the offer, and I kind of became her son. I had uh, nothing better to do. She had something like 12 peacocks and six dogs and five cats and everything else. <laughs> and she had about a five-acre plot outside of Dayton, Ohio. And as I said, I kind of became her son. I helped her cut the wood. I cut the grass and uh, various things. As it was, she also, she was from England originally, and she liked to have Saturday night parties every couple of weeks or so. And a lot of people who were invited over there were retirees that uh, either worked with or for her husband uh, before he passed away. Mm -hmm. And one of the guys that I happened to meet was... They call him Doctor, Doctor Adolf Rom. He was um, at that time he was about 86 years old, just as sharp as a tack. He was actually born in Switzerland. Um, he was a friend of uh, Doctor Oppenheimer. Mm -hmm. He was also on the first A bomb test in the U.S. He knew Doctor Oppenheimer personally. And one night after after our dinner, we uh, had a couple of drinks, and I happened to get a hold of Adolf, and I said, uh, we became very, very close friends, as it was. And I said, uh, Adolf, uh, what about these little green men that are supposedly on ice here at Wright-Patterson? And his face turned ashen white almost instantaneously. And he said, Arnie, he says, I will, that's all I'll say is that they were not weather balloons. Then he got very, very stern, and he says, and we will never talk about it again. You understand the independent Swiss-German dialect or whatever. But I, I touched a nerve of some kind with him. Now, I don't know what the relationship was between he and Colonel Spence Whedon. I could never find that out. Nobody ever said. I think that there must have been some kind of uh, relationship there. Lieutenant uh, Colonel Whedon was I called Mr. UFO at Wright-Patterson back in the, the 50s time frame. He briefed all the generals about UFO activities and, and whatnot. And I guess that's why the Armstrong Circle Theater made this interview between he and Major Kehoe. And as I say, I will try to find that tape and, and send it to you so you could take and digitize it and, and whatnot. Well, that'd be, that would be great, yeah. Well, I interestingly, the, the doctor as we say, 
given what you just said, he he uh, he had street cred, uh, mm -hmm. uh, being involved with uh, the Manhattan Project and that kind of thing. Um, it just makes you wonder. Uh, you know, g given all the stories at, at Wright Pat, what's your take on all that? Do you think uh, uh, there's anything to the uh, extraterrestrial stories in, in regards to bodies and that kind of thing? Oh yeah, I, you know, I can't prove any of it, but uh, I have a strong belief that in fact something was found by somebody, and they were taken taken someplace, and they're probably still on ice someplace. I, I don't know, but I've always believed that. And as I say, I have no proof of any kind. The uh, we've uh, some of the researchers that I work with, uh, I work with different people on, on different cases. And uh, in regards to the Roswell case, we do have a witness uh, who claimed that her father was involved with Roswell and that they would move uh, evidence in different parts of the country for various people uh, to analyze. And part of that evidence was, in fact, bodies uh, based on this individual's account. And uh, But she, she mentioned certain locations across the country and that they would rotate this. In other words, the, the evidence was, was not kept in any one place for any length of time. Uh, it, it leads to his, uh, her father's involvement in this. Mm -hmm. And she made it clear, and this makes sense, of course, in regards to compartmentalization uh, and, and classification, she made it clear that, that it, at least in, with her father's peers, that no one person had all the pieces of, of what was go uh, 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 you know, proverbially speaking. Uh, everybody was working on different slices of what was going on. You know, no, exactly nobody, right. yeah, nobody at, at his peer level uh, had a clear picture of, of what was happening. Uh, right. You know, obviously be somebody's uh, uh, superiors. Now, and we checked into her father's credentials, and he certainly was who he said he was. Uh, and all of this, it, it just sounds very, very intriguing. Of course, uh, it's primarily anecdotal. Uh, we, we did get verification of his credentials. He was where he said he was uh, in regards to, you know, where he was in the military, and then later as a private contractor, some of the, the firms that he worked with. So. It just get, it, it gets really intriguing when you hear some of these stories in, uh, uh, in regards to if they're authentic or not. But, uh, well, it, aside from Wright Pat, just in general, uh, Arnie, given your rank, now you, you retired as a lieutenant colonel, correct? Right. In your capacity under that rank, uh, did you ever experience any... Uh, UFO minutia in any in any regard uh, as a lieutenant colonel or or below going going up the ranks. Well, in the aside, in the aside from the '67 incident, right in in the, in the mid '70s, I was a commander of the radar squadron uh, close by Loring Air Force Base, Maine, and Loring was active at that time. It was a SAC missile or a SAC bomber base. And uh, my security company, on a periodic basis, had a need to meet with the security 
police over at Lauren Air Force Base. And I can recall on two different occasions uh, them telling us that they had actually seen UFOs over the missile storage or over the uh, nuclear storage areas at Lauren Air Force Base. I don't know if there were any reports ever written about that. I don't know if any of the the weapons were degraded uh, by the UFO presence of, of any kind, but uh, I do recall them telling both of us uh, about UFO activities over Lauren Air Force Base. So once, so once again, we have a UFO nuke connection. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, and, and, and that, quite frankly, that's the preponderance of the evidence. This is a repetitive action uh, where there's a history, there's a pattern uh, in regards to UFO activity uh, pertaining to uh, either uh, uh, nuclear weapons facilities uh, and, and or just nuclear facilities and the manufacture thereof. You know, for exa example, the, uh, the sightings that were at Hanford uh, in Washington, the plutonium plant there, or right. the Savannah River project, uh, you know, all these things happened in the, in the, from 47 on. Uh, you had Oak Ridge uh, in Tennessee, repeated uh, UFO sightings, Los Alamos, Roswell, of course, later Walker, uh, right. on and on and on again. And I can't, you know, we touched on it a little bit in the first hour with Bob, uh, if nuclear, I mean, if UFOs uh, can affect nuclear weapons, and I asked Bob point blank when he was in the silo, uh, I, I said you, there was a time when if you had to launch nuclear weapons uh, in your capacity uh, in, with your job, you couldn't do it. Is that correct? He said that's correct. The same, of course, we know happened at Echo. Missiles would not have been able to have been launched. So. If that it doesn't uh, affect national security, I don't know what does. Uh, you know, so the notion, the, the official position of the Air Force, and, and with the conclusion of Project Blue Book under the Condon report, stating that UFOs are not a threat to national security is just a bunch of hogwash. <laughs> because we have so much proof, uh, you know, to the otherwise. It's just, it's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, the powers that be don't don't want to admit it. No, and and of course we've, uh, you know, that's gone on for generations, and and this just continues to go on. What if you had your way, in regards to the the press conference that you participated in, what would you like to see happen from that? I mean, what would be the best case scenario? Uh, you know, that got that did get a lot of attention with mainstream media. Um, there, as Bob said, there were some good, salient interviews opposed to the nonsense that we oftentimes get. But uh, what would you, you know, if you, if you had your way, what would you like to see happen? What? Well, I guess idealistically, I uh, would like the, the government, the U.S. government, that is, to come forth and actually, you know, tell the truth about some of these things that... Uh, I don't think it's ever going to happen. I don't think they. <clears throat> I don't think they have the backbone and want to take the risk to have any kind of disclosure activities come forth because of the. Oh, I don't know. The political, the religious, different aspects. I don't know if we're ready for it as a nation or as a world if we're ready to have the the truth revealed. <clears throat> I know. I 
I'd yeah. like to see it happen, but I don't think it ever will. Uh, sadly, I, I, I tend to agree with that. I, I really think, uh, well, I have, I've often said that a, a grandiose event would have to take place uh, for people you know, to notice. But really, there have been a lot of grandiose events, technically, that have taken place that still get shoved to the wayside. Uh, Steve, Stephenville. In recent times, uh, right. you know that was a yeah that was a very uh, noticeable event, uh, you know and and again what really became of that? We we did get a new wave uh, of of researchers and people interested in, in the story. I mean, quite frankly, the Joiner report, the very show we're on, was born because of the the Stephenville incident. But that you know that was a pretty significant incident. I mean, we right. had. We had planes chasing this large UFO, uh, you know, that was in close proximity to the the presidential ranch. Yet that one slipped by. And, and you know, what did have has things? You know, do we know more as a people? Did did the government step up step up to the plate and admit anything? No. You can go a little bit further back, and uh, you know, a case uh, that very similar to Stephenville was the Phoenix Lights. You know, yeah. and these basically are. Technically, in you know relatively near times, close to the 40s or 50s, and that was a most significant event. And what a lot of people don't realize is that that instant, the the reports of these large uh, V-shaped or boomerang UFOs, not only I mean it was much larger than Phoenix. It went across. Uh, it, well, not only did it go across the state of Arizona, it actually went in various states, and there were reports coast to coast in the spring of '97. Here again was an instance where something could have been said, something could have been admitted, and yet, although that did garner public attention for for a pretty good long time, well, and still does to some degree, that went by the wayside. I mean, we have we've got the letters from uh, Senator McCain that uh, said, well, we kind of looked into it, nothing became of it, and then then just put it to the wayside. So, uh, unfortunately, I. I, I heed, I take heed to what you say. I'm wondering if we're going to hear something in our lifetime. Uh, I don't know. I recall back um, kind of a sidelight here, but back in 2001, <coughs> uh, when I was with the Dr. Veer, Bob Salas and I were, you know, with Dr. Veer back in the National Press Club, the lady that sponsored Dr. Veer into the National Press Club, and I forget her name, she has since passed away, but. Uh, she was the one that used to be in the front row of all the presidential, you know, news conferences, and she would say, Mr. President, Mr. President, you know. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, she got him aside one time, he, Mr. President Clinton, and said, when are you going to take and tell the public about the UFOs? And he told her, he said, there is an element of the government that I have no control over, and I can do nothing about it. That is what President Clinton told her about the UFO situation. <laughs> well, I, uh, oh, I, I'm having uh, a little brain cramp on the gentleman's name that, uh, that of course, labeled the president's tempor temporary occupants of the White House. So uh, that, of course, makes a world of sense. It, it harkens back to Project Shamrock. Uh, with the NSA when when they were literally intercepting all of the uh, 
cables from U.S. citizens and, 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 and literally recording them. And oh, yeah. no sitting president was aware of that uh, up until Nixon. Nixon finally found out about that. And, uh, you know, presidents would come and presidents would go while this, this illegal activity went on, which, by the way, uh, was in part done by several large corporations at the time. Uh, completely against uh, the, the laws of this country, uh, an invasion of privacy and, and literally constitutional rights, uh, yet they did it and no president knew about it until Nixon became aware of it. Um, yeah. and, and these are the things that we know about, uh, you know, much, much less the things that, uh, you know, don't see the light of day. Um, what, what you it, say is true. In my capacity in the communication world, I... I, I knew about those things many, many years ago, decades ago, yeah. but I could say nothing because of my currency. Right. Well, it, you know, I don't know. I, I guess it's sad in a sense. Uh, you know, during the break, uh, Bob and Joe and I were talking. You know, what what do we do? What chip we have to chip away at it. Uh, yeah, that's, and that's I, all we I can think do. that's yeah, that's all we can do. And there are. It, it, even in chipping away at it, positive things do do come about. I mean, we did, you know, this last press conference, uh, a, a couple new witnesses have stepped forward. And not only the witnesses themselves, it's something I was talking about with this particular witness that reached out to me, or the friend of the witness, I should say. Uh, I was explaining to him, the friend, that uh, what happens with a new set of circumstances, we get new clues to work. And I was, I was actually pleased in the sense that this particular witness was coming from a different Air Force base because that gives us a whole new location to file uh, Freedom of Information Act re requests. Uh, you know, we, we have kind of fresh ground to work. Right. Uh, so I'm, I'm real excited uh, about uh, what's going to take place with that. And even, and of course, the flip side, you know, he may have come back. I, I mean, had he said, well, I, look, I, I was there at Echo or I was there at Oscar, then it's another witness to, to further shore up the events that happened in those cases, mm -hmm. but uh, in in either case, it's it's a fresh voice uh, that hopefully will be added publicly. I, I have explained to this witness that uh, you know, however he wants to handle that, his confidentiality, of course, will be guarded uh, if that's how he chooses. Although I would prefer that he go public, but I understand completely, uh, given his position. Uh, you know, if he comes to mind. The only way to eat an elephant is a bite at a time. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Maybe yeah. Really, it's simplistic, but it's very, very truthful. No, that, that's absolutely right. And uh, yeah. well, you know, we've we've been going after this thing. I, I, again, we were saying this during the break that you know what's old is new again. A, a lot of yeah. people that that are new to the field, they think all these things are new, when in fact the very same arguments were made 60 years ago. Uh, you know, there, there, there were, you can go back and, and read articles at the time where many, the ufologists of the day really felt that there was going to be disclosure at any minute. And that oh, yeah. was 60 years ago. <laughs> yep, yep. You know, they thought, well, my God, they're going to say something. Look at all this activity. You know, the yep. powers that be are, are going to have to come clean. And yep. you, you could see that time and time again, not only in, in, the, uh, in the print media, but uh, all the books that were being written at the time. Amen. You know, they were, they were going to spill the beans any minute. 
and uh, you know, here we are, 60 plus years later, having the same conversation for God. Yep. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. It's, uh, um, well, Arnie, is is there anything going on uh, that you're going to be involved in uh, here in the very near future? Mm, no, just retirement. <laughs> well, I mean, in regards to ufology, I, no, I know you no. uh, you got involved in that early on, and and uh, we all certainly appreciate that uh, that involvement. But no, I'm going to uh, be. Uh, I'm going to continue to be involved as best I can or, you know, keep researching them. I find it to be a very, very fascinating topic that uh, if I knew what what they are, where they're from, why they're here, I wouldn't be where I am right now, I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, now, it, it, one thing that did happen uh, in, in the press conference is, uh, and, and God bless Robert Hastings for this, uh, he, he makes no bones about it. He He is not as what Stan Friedman would call a uh, apologetic ufologist or a, a ufologist apologist. He just mm -hmm. lays it on the line, and he does, uh, he, he makes it clear that he believes, uh, he, he supports the ETH, the extraterrestrial hypothesis. He believes uh, perhaps that, uh, that whoever's driving these UFOs around have an interest uh, in our nuclear weapons ambitions, and perhaps that they're uh, they're giving us a hint. Is what do you think about that? Well, I think they're trying to send us a message of some kind, like, "Hey guys, knock it off. You know, you don't need these things. Um, where they're from? Are they extra extraterrestrial? I don't know. Are they from a different dimension? Maybe." Are they from the inside of the earth? Maybe. You know, who knows? If, but the fact is they've been around for hundreds of years, and they have been watching us. If Maybe not, they not are. They, if not thousands, yeah. Go back into the, the ancient texts of India. They were there then. This is sure. 5,000 years ago, the Amanas. Well, I, I have expanded my definition of extraterrestrial, and basically what it includes is anything not us. So oh, when right. I say ET or extraterrestrial, uh, I, I just throw a blanket over it, and it's anything not us. Because, I, you right. know, look, I don't know where they're coming from. Uh, right. I don't think there's enough data on the table to, to, for anybody to tell us where they're coming from. That's um, in any event, uh, Arnie, the, we are at the end of our hour. Uh, it zipped by again as it did the first hour, as I know it would, <laughs> and uh, we are at the end of another great show. And I just really appreciate you coming on. Uh, and, and like Bob, I hope I can get you back here in the near future and we can continue this uh, worthwhile conversation. Um, well, it's been my pleasure. Well, and, and uh, thank you, uh, Arnie, for coming on, and my thanks to Bob Salas as well. A special thanks to Angela for allowing me to keep her seat warm, and, of course, to you, the listeners. Angela will be back next week with yet another fascinating guest. I'm Frank Warren for the Joiner Report. You're listening to the UFO Paranormal Radio Network, WPRN New Orleans. Until next time, good night. interested in a radio program that focuses on the deeper aspects of the UFO topic? Would you like to explore the facts and truths of what ufology and UFO research are all about? 
Then join us here every Saturday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern on the UFO Paranormal Radio Network for Eye to the Sky UFO Synopsis with your host, D. Andrew. program that looks at the UFO topic from a fresh perspective. Sound interesting? Then join us here on the UFO Paranormal Radio Network every Friday evening at 11 p.m. Eastern, 10 p.m. Central 4, The Joyner Report, hosted by journalist and researcher Angela Joyner. Tune in to UFO Undercover. Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern with your host, Joe Montaldo, right here on the Paranormal Radio Network. Hey, hi there. Got your attention? I'm Gia Scott, and I was curious.